Good morning, church. Be well. Be feeling as feeling as rested as Beth made August sound. No. <laughs> Good. For the last week, um, I've been away in North Yorkshire because we needed to recover from camping up Focus. Um, <clears throat> so. Uh, as you do when you live in the Midlands and you get within, you know, kind of like an hour of the seaside, you go to the seaside, right? Because you live in the Midlands. Um, so it happened to be on the North Sea coast and we found ourselves at the seaside at Saltburn-on-Sea. Some of you know it. Some of you have been up the, the railway, which is like this steep. Um, other people are looking at me like they don't know what I'm talking about. That's fine. But being on this beach was actually a really moving experience for me for quite a weird reason. I'd been there once before when we visited some friends. And the last time we had visited this beach, it was at a less seasonal time of year. And that was good for me because I was still afraid of dogs. I don't know if you know this, but people walk their dogs on the beach. <laughs> Beaches are not safe places if you're afraid of dogs. I was actually afraid of dogs until I was 31. I know some of you didn't think I was 31, but I was afraid of dogs until I was 31, and that is in the past. It's a few years ago. It's not my finest trait. I don't think of it with glee, and that's actually why I don't lead with it when I meet you. It's why you might not have known it until now. <laughs> but it's true. And this actually changed when I became an ordinand at Trinity, when I joined the team at Trinity, because Johnny and Amy sat down, and, you know, they're not here, so I'll tell it this way. They said I'd be God's gift to this church. They said that the church had been waiting for me, that now the favor of the Lord was upon them and the Holy Spirit was with them because I was here. Um, I hope they don't watch that. But they said they'd be very happy to have me on the team, but that their staff meeting happened at their house, and they had a dog, so... And that's how the conversation finished. <laughs> and it was at this moment that I decided to self-refer for cognitive behavioral therapy on the NHS. So some of your taxpayers' money funded a psychologist sitting in a room with me and saying, if you want to get over being afraid of dogs, you should go and sit with some dogs. <laughs> right? Money well spent, yeah? Everyone's happy. Um, <laughs> it was a very strange summer that summer because it, 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 I went up to everybody that I saw that was walking a dog and said, can I say hello to your dog? I went to friends' houses not to see friends, but to sit in the garden while their dog wandered around off its lead so that I could get over my fear. <laughs> I forced myself to, to speak to dogs. And it worked because I can now go to Saltburn on sea spending the, without spending the entire time anxiously looking around to see what dogs are doing or restricting myself to the narrow portion of beach which is, which is dog excluded and silently in my heart judging all you dog owners that don't care which bits of the beach are safe for me. Right? You know who you are. But I tell you this story. I tell you this story because I think it helps to get at the kind of dynamic that Paul's describing in 2 Corinthians 12. So in the passage we've heard, um, it arrives as Paul is, is, is talking about his credentials. He's showing off his credentials. It's a whole passage about boasting and what you can boasting, boast in and how foolish boasting might be. And in chapter 11, it's all about how he can boast of whatever anyone else can boast of, whether it's Jewish status markers or the ability to endure hardship. And in, in uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 
he strikes at something a little bit closer to you and me. He starts talking about visions and revelations, surpassingly great revelations. I think it's because of my surpassingly great revelations that Johnny and Amy were so eager to have me on the team, right? He starts talking about the things that we might boast in. Well, the Lord spoke to me this morning. I just had a picture for you. Feels good when you get to say that, right? So we recognize what he's talking about here. We know that it's the holy people who see visions. Apparently, that's not what we should be boasting in, according to Paul. The climax of all Paul's boasting is this strange claim that when I am weak, then I am strong. That's so, I'm trying, that's so weird. I've always wanted to do that. Um, (laughs) It's so weird. Think about it. It's upside down. I don't lead with my kinophobia. Word for fear of dogs. You've learned something if you hear nothing else. I don't lead with that because it's weak. I'm not proud of it. I'm really not. It's upside down. And more than that, for Paul, it means the things that we would boast about are not, should not be our achievements, but weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, difficulties. I don't know how that list strikes you, but it doesn't seem like a strong list to me. If I was going to get in touch with the alumni organization at either my school or my university, I would not present them with a list of my weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and difficulties. I might tell them about my degrees or something like this, my surpassingly great revelations. Paul's turning this upside down. When I'm listing my strengths, I don't list a fear of dogs. I don't wish that I still had that strength in my life. What could Paul possibly mean? His claim that whenever I am weak, then I am strong comes in the context of him talking about physical suffering. He talks about a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from becoming too elated. We don't know exactly what he means, but from what we read in other places in his writings, it seems possible or likely that he had an issue with his eyesight that lasted beyond his interaction with Ananias in Acts. But whatever was wrong with Paul, something that we do know is that it was visible and it made people judge him. How do I know that? In Galatians 4, he writes about this community as welcoming him despite the fact that he had this ailment despite the fact that he was this kind of person. He was the kind of person, the sense in this is that he was the kind of person that you cross the street to avoid. That's who Paul is, this great apostle. More than that, though, to the Galatians, he writes that they became able to see Christ in him. They welcomed him as an angel of God. The gospel... God's God's good news made it possible for them to see the wisdom of God in the weakness of Paul. It's fascinating, isn't it? It's Paul's suffering and not his strength that made Christ visible in him. It was in his weakness 
that Christ's strength emerged. He knows what he's writing about in 2 Corinthians 12. And you know what? Wouldn't it be like God to be like this? If Jesus is the image of the invisible God, then the God that we worship is one whose glory is most made manifest in suffering, in obedience to death, even death on a cross with the promise of resurrection. We don't have a God who uses power to dominate, who uses power to get his way, but a God who gives himself away for the sake of others. His power isn't used in the way that the world uses power. Jesus wins differently. He triumphs by taking on the worst that sin can throw at him and continuing to love. God's greatness isn't isn't his ability to make everything happen. God's greatness isn't the amount that he is uh, higher than the earth as the heavens are higher than the earth. God's greatness is his love. God's power is the kind of power that shows up in weakness and it looks different to what you and I recognize in the world around us. In your day job, when you're at school, when you're at university, when you're in that conversation about what you've made, with your, made of your life with your acquaintances, with your friends, with your family, with the people that you only see once a year during the summer holidays perhaps. When Paul goes to God with his thorn in the flesh, this ailment that people can see and that people are judging, and he asks the Almighty to remove it, he gets a shocking response. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Think about that. This is Paul the Apostle. Acts chapter 19 tells us that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. But he wasn't healed. In fact, God chooses not to heal him but to display his power precisely in that lack of healing. Paul knows for a fact that God heals. That's why he comes to God. He doesn't come to God hopeful. He comes to God knowing that God heals. Jesus is raised. Jesus has won. By his stripes, we are healed. Death is defeated. All the things we've sung about are true. The one who sits on the throne is making all things new. The kingdom is coming. This is good news, and it's true, and the resurrection of Jesus is the promise of that. But in Paul's life, God displays his power in this moment, not by healing, but by being with him in his weakness. Jesus doesn't shy away from suffering, and suffering doesn't disprove everything I just said. There's another side to the good news. Nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God. And I think, I think that fear can help this to make sense. Fear and courage exist in an odd relationship because real courage can only happen when you feel fear. In fact, courage is feeling fear and acting anyway. What this means is that in many circumstances, Courage feels like fear. Courage feels like fear. 
It's not courageous for many of you to pet a dog or go to a beach. But for a season of my life, it was. Because I felt fear. Courage feels like fear. And I think something similar can be true of strength and weakness. See, there is a strength that Paul could claim. His heritage, his visions, his honor, his surpassingly great revelations. We would definitely want him on the team here. He had more reason than any of us to flaunt his accomplishments. He was top of his class. He was the salesman of the year. He was the player of the year in an era when Messi and Ronaldo were both at their peak. He beat Adele and Beyonce to the Grammy. That's the relevant award there, I'm just checking. He won the Oscar when he was up against the category that somehow included both Leonardo DiCaprio and Meryl Streep. He had chops. In his culture, he had amassed honor. He had every right and every reason to boast. Even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and their evil spirits left them. I think you would be stoked if that was true about you. Even elsewhere in Acts, the evil spirits, they know Jesus, and they know Paul. Flip me. The whole spiritual realm has taken notice of this guy. He has stuff to boast about. And this guy says that God's power is made perfect in weakness. Because like courage appears in the presence of fear, strength often appears in the presence of weakness. God works his mighty power in Paul. Friends, your weakness, your suffering, your thorns in the flesh, your disappointments, your hurts, the places, the moments where, where God appeared to abandon you, it's not evidence, it's not actually evidence that God doesn't care. In fact, it could be there that God is choosing to make his power perfect in your weakness. It could be there that God wants to meet you. He might just be a God who can bring life in death. And I think this is where hope lives. Hope, hope's a really interesting thing because it lives with a gap. It lives with a gap between the ideal and the real, but it does it in a positive way. It trusts that the gap is not evidence of a separation from God's love, but a sign that his love is still working, that he hasn't finished yet. Hope, you see, can seem really weak. I hope it will happen. It's faint, isn't it? But hope is powerful. It tells faith to keep going because God is still working. It helps love to keep working because this is not the end. It is strength in the weakness of everything not yet being right. Romans 5, Paul writes this, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. As Matt led us in intercessions, hope takes faith and makes it interact with the cold light of day. 
when the relationship that you've been praying about is just hard work and nothing's shifting. When your elderly relative doesn't quite recognize you anymore. When there's too much month at the end of the money. When the diagnosis wasn't what you hoped it would be. Hope is strength in that weakness. Hope trusts God that the gap is not evidence of a separation from his love, but a sign that his love is still working. And he pours out his Holy Spirit on us as a deposit, as a seal that we are headed for resurrection and that all things are going to be made made new. And hope teaches us to trust that. It's strength in weakness. When we meet Elijah in 1 Kings 19, he's in a similar moment to Paul, caught between boasting and weakness. Elijah has just had a prophetic showdown with the prophets of Baal in which God acted and sent fire from heaven to burn up Elijah's sacrifice. And that was proof enough for the crowd that Elijah was right and the others were wrong because their God had sent no such fire. And so they killed all the other prophets. This is a massive victory for Elijah. And yet, when we meet him, The political powers that be haven't appreciated the truth that he has spoken to them and they want his blood next. And he's running away. He's caught between Yahweh's action triumphing over his enemies in the most literal terms and the despair and the loneliness of being him. He sits down under a broom tree and makes a simple enough request. Take me now, Lord. He's out of hope. Have you ever been there? I'm just done. I don't even know what it means to check out, but I would like to. (laughs) It's really dark. I don't see how we go forwards. So I'm just going to sit here. Take me now. I'm done. Nothing can separate me from your love. Then why don't I feel it? Why don't I feel strong? Why do I just feel weak if your power is made perfect in weakness? Why doesn't it feel like that? Elijah doesn't appear to feel good in this passage. But God's power is made perfect in Elijah's weakness. God doesn't answer his prayer. I think this story actually shows us some of the way that God's strength is revealed in weakness because it's his love. God doesn't answer the prayer. He meets Elijah there. He provides food that can sustain. He gives bread for the journey. He lets Elijah sleep, and he makes him bread, and he gives him a glass of water. He meets Elijah as Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. He meets him in his humanness, in his body in the tiredness and in the weakness and in the suffering and in the loneliness and in the despair. God doesn't take it away. He doesn't even take Elijah to the top of the mountain. 
He doesn't confront Elijah with the evidence that he's wrong and the Lord has many people. He doesn't tell Elijah to stop being (laughs) so self-absorbed. He doesn't tell Elijah to look at something that isn't his navel. He doesn't tell Elijah, look, I am God and I am great. He makes Elijah food. He gives Elijah rest. In Elijah's weakness, he gives him the strength to take the journey. And ultimately, he gives him the strength to take the journey to meet with God in the middle of this moment. That's where Elijah ends up, in, on Mount Carmel, encountering God. God's power is made perfect in weakness. When Elijah is despairing, God strengthens him. Look at the kindness that keeps Elijah going. Yahweh is tender and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. How slow of heart I can be to believe that. He's not impatient with Elijah, and he's not impatient with you. He knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are but dust, and his love looks like kindness, and his love looks like tenderness, and his love doesn't lift you out of every situation. His strength is made perfect in your weakness. He is with you in it. He chooses to make his power perfect in weakness. Because that's the kind of God that we serve. That's the God of Israel. His love runs deep and it looks like kindness. Friends, this is the good news. God has committed to wipe away every tear from every eye when all is made new. And that is where we're going. And God does heal because that kingdom is breaking in. And when we pray, when we pray as Matt led us today, we insist on that here and now. And we hold before God the gap between those two things in hope. God is committed to wipe away every tear from every eye. But more than that, his grace is sufficient. And it's sufficient for you. And it's sufficient to help you on the way. We have an opportunity this morning in a second to receive bread in the wilderness. To encounter a grace which is sufficient when you are not and to know his power made perfect in weakness. And our response this morning will initially be to receive bread and wine, to receive the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in doing this, to come and receive his grace in the wilderness. And afterwards, we will have an opportunity to pray for anyone who's hurting or anyone who's hungry. But his power is for each and every one of you this morning. His power is made perfect in each and every weakness. There is no suffering which God can't imagine meeting you in. There's room for everyone to sit down at the table with the king. He loves you.